I would invite you to open your Bibles if you have them, and I would encourage you to bring them to church, bring your Bibles to church, I think that's a good idea. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and while you're doing that, I just want to thank um, all our musicians, Jessica, and the sound and slide team, and the ushers, and the deacons, and everybody else who kind of puts their two cents worth into what's going on on a Sunday morning. Um, Dave mentioned he's glad to be leading when people are singing. It's hard to be singing and leading, doing music when there's nothing coming back at you. It can be very difficult, especially when all you're used to is usually 200 roughly people, you know, singing back towards you and praising God together with you. So it's, it's been difficult. Um, so thank you, team. Thank you, Jessica, for all that you've done. And I don't know where you went. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and we're going to read to the end of verse 11. This is what has been called by commentators the Christ hymn. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather... He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you bow your heads and pray with me one more time? Father, we have, we have already seen the truth of who you are in the songs that we've been singing, in the reminders that we've had from your scripture reading, by the prayers that have already been spoken and lifted up to you. We are reminded that you are a great God who loves for your people and who cares for us very much. We pray now that as we come to your word in this passage, that you would help us to see Jesus, that you would help us to worship him more fully, and that you would change our hearts and change our minds and change our lives to be more like him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've been able to start singing the past couple of weeks, and it's exciting, it's good, it's refreshing to be able to sing and worship together. And we all have what are our typical favorite songs, right? We all have those one, two, maybe five songs that we would go to all the time. And maybe you had them on your playlist, on your phone, or on Spotify, or whatever you had. You were listening to them over over the past six, seven months as we haven't been able to sing together. But you've got those songs that you go back to over and over again that help remind you of who God is and who we are and help you engage in worship. And I, I have a couple that I would be quite content with singing every week. Um, Some people think that would get a little bit repetitive and boring. When we come to this passage, what we need to recognize is that this is one of those hymns that the early church used. This is one of those songs that the early church went back to again and again and again and used. 
we're not quite sure. Commentators kind of go back and forth on whether Paul actually penned this, wrote this, came up with this himself. It came out of his mind, guided by the Spirit, or whether it was somebody else who put this down on paper. Regardless, Paul uses this in his letter to remind the people of something important. He uses this song, which is a good reminder for us that songs, when used properly, should remind us and point us to truths about who Jesus is, should point us to truths about who God is, should actually engage us in a heart filled with worship. And Paul uses this hymn with a very specific thing in mind. He has a purpose with bringing this song up. There's actually and I don't understand all of this, I'm not going to pretend to understand all of the Greek and all the stuff that goes back into the, the original language. It's apparently very beautiful. All the commentators agree that this is a very beautifully constructed song, hymn of worship. They go back and forth on how you should put the lines together and what, what pairings you should put together and it looks more beautiful this way or if you put verses six and seven together and then eight and nine together and sometimes if you just do half of a line and this half of a line they go back and forth on that but what they all agree is is that this is a beautifully written hymn and Paul uses this beautifully written hymn and he precursors it with verse five and this is something that we have to remind ourselves as we go into this whatever we take out of this whatever truth we see about Jesus and who he is This is the the reason. Verse 5 is the reason that Paul gives us and reminds us of this hymn. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's the whole point of the hymn. It's to understand the mindset of Christ, the attitude that Christ has. And the point is, have the same one. Be on the same page as Christ. Not just the same page as one another. Paul, earlier in his letter, he's called for unity. He's called for the believers to stand together, to strive together, to fight together for the faith. And it's not just come together and have the same basic goal that could be anything that you want. Just come together and be together. Paul's point is not unity for the sake of unity. It's unity in Jesus Christ. Be Christ-like in your approach to humility. Verse 4, if you look back in your Bibles in verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Don't look just out for yourself, look out for others. That's the point. This is the point that Paul is bringing up this hymn. Christ is set out as our example to follow. Look to Christ. See how he thinks. Do you remember back in the, the 90s, they had those, those bracelets, I never really got into them, but they had the WWJD Anybody ever wear them? Oh, you don't have to say whether you wore, wore them. They, they were a product of their time. What would Jesus do? And that's what Paul, in a much more emphasized theological way, he's saying, look at what Jesus does and do as he does. Because being united with Christ, Paul has said this over and over again in the first chapter, we are in Christ. Those that are in Christ have something very unique, very special. We have been given a gracious gift and we are now supposed to, we are now called to take that gracious gift and express it to others, to show that to others because being in Christ has changed us, changed us from the old man to the new, from darkness into light. We have been changed by Christ and now we look to the example that Christ has given us and we push on. So when we come to the hymn, we see a couple of things. The first thing is in verse 6. Jesus Christ is fully God. You can't escape that. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Paul is affirming here the deity of Christ. Christ. 
Paul is affirming that Jesus Christ is God. Whatever Jesus Christ is, whoever Jesus Christ is, he is God. That is, whatever God is, Jesus is. Very nature, or very form, as some translations have, means that Christ has the exact being, the exact essence. Whatever God is, Jesus Christ is. That includes his character qualities, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his justice, his wrath, his anger. Whatever you see and attribute to true to God, whatever we see in the scriptures, and we can say that is what God is. God is love. We can say Jesus Christ is love too because he has the very nature, the very being, the very essence of God. But on top of that, not only does Jesus Christ have all the character qualities that God has, Jesus has all of the rights and the privileges that come along with being God. God has certain rights that no other being in the universe has. God has certain privileges that no other being in the universe has. And all of those are true for Jesus Christ. And we need to see that and understand that. We need to understand what Paul is emphasizing in the deity of Jesus Christ before we can fully appreciate and fully understand what verses seven and eight are talking about. We need to understand that when it says that Jesus was equal with God, he did not consider equality with God. The point is, is that he could have. He could have considered equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, something to be grasped, something to be held on to because he was equal with God. He is equal with God. But he chose to use that equality with God for somebody else's benefit and not for his own. The son had every right to not take on humanity, to not take on the form of a servant, to not take on the very nature of a servant so that others might be saved, so that sinners might be called to repentance and faith in him. Jesus had every right not to do that. He had every right to stay on the throne because he was king. He had every right, and he is the only being in the universe who could have said, that's below me, that's beneath me, I need not do that. It's not my job. He had every right to do that. The question is, why would, he, why would he use equality with God, which he already possessed, not something he had to attain? Why would he use equality with God for others and not himself? We will take equality with God, and that's the one thing that we're actually trying to attain, right? We, it's actually the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. The lie that Satan told Adam and Eve was, no, you're not going to die. Take the fruit, eat it, and you will be just like God. That was the thing that the first sin that Adam and Eve fell into was attaining, seeking to attain equality with God. Jesus, who had equality with God, the Son had every right and every privilege that came with being equal with God, and he decided, because it's built into his nature, built into who he is, into his essence, because he possesses a spirit of pure unselfishness, self-sacrifice and love, because he is who God is, it's built into who he is, he decided and chose willingly, that's another important thing that we need to see, is that He wasn't forced into this. He decided that the equality he had with God was not worth using for his own advantage, that he actually wanted to use it for your benefit and mine. The other reason that he decided 
to do that. The other reason why he might actually use his equality with God for others, for the benefit of others, and not just hang on to it himself, even though he had every right, is because Jesus Christ had nothing to prove. The Son had nothing to prove sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning on high. When we get into positions of power and authority, what do we do? We try to act and show ourselves to be worthy of being in that position. We have something to prove. In some sense, I'll use this example because it's myself and I'm not going to point that out uh, about anybody else in here. I have something to prove. I have to prove myself equal to the task of what Steve was doing, preaching the word of God week by week. I, in some sense, need to prove myself equal to Steve. No, I'm not Steve and I don't preach like Steve and I don't act like Steve and thank you for recognizing that. Um, (laughs) I'm just going to put that on you. Jesus Christ had nothing to prove sitting at the right hand of the Father. Every ruler that comes into power, whether it's the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Canada, or a king who becomes king of any kingdom anywhere around the world, has something to prove that they are worthy of that position. You ought to listen to me. You have to dispel and distract and prove all of your haters wrong. You have to prove everybody who thinks you should not be in that position. You have to prove all of them wrong by stepping up your game, by getting into that position and going, see, I told you I was equal to this task. I was equal to what you have asked me to do. I was equal to where I've been. I am equal. I, give me the respect I deserve. Jesus Christ didn't have to do that. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, he had nothing to prove. He didn't have to hang on to that position of the throne because he didn't have to prove that to anybody. He didn't have to prove to us that he was worthy of the throne. He didn't have to prove to the angels. He didn't have to prove to the universe that he was worthy of being king. He was equal with God. And he decided that equality with God, what he already possessed, possessing the very nature of who God is, being God himself, he didn't have to hang on to that so tightly and use it for his own advantage. He was willing, and what we see in verses 7 to 8, we see the second thing, that Jesus Christ is fully human. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He made himself nothing. Rather than hanging on to equality with God, which is everything, rather, instead of doing that, he made himself nothing. And what does nothing mean? It doesn't mean no thing, right? There's a philosophical debate about nothing. Can you actually talk about nothing? Because the moment you start talking about nothing, you're actually talking about something. The very nature of what nothing is, is it's nothing. You can't actually talk about nothing because nothing... Do you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) I don't understand what I'm saying. Nothing is a very confusing thing to understand. Is Paul affirming in verse 7 that Jesus Christ made himself nothing, non-existent? No. It doesn't mean that he became nothing. Because he describes what this nothingness, by taking on nothing, what that means in the rest of the verse. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his divine nature. His equality with God, his, his very nature of godness, he didn't get rid of that to take on the nature of a servant. 
He surrendered his divine rights of being equal with God. He didn't give up being God. He gave up his rights that came with being with God, that came with being God. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That's how he became nothing, by taking on the nature of a servant. He made himself nothing by being emptied of significance while still remaining God. All of the rights and privileges that came along with being God, he gave up. He became a servant. If, there's ever, if there ever was a being in the universe who did not need to serve anybody, it's God. God is the only being in the universe that has the right to demand of every other being in the universe, you must serve and worship me. And yet, he is the one who takes on the nature of a servant. He didn't enter into humanity with the rights and privileges due to him as God. He became a true human. And he didn't take the role of Lord when he came in his humanity. He didn't come as a king. It's not like he, being equal with God, having the rights and privileges that come along with being God, he did not take that and just kind of dumb it down when he came as a human. It's not like ultimate king and just really, really good human king. He came in the form of a servant, being found in appearance as man. Paul's stressing that Christ was genuinely human. People actually saw him as human. He was clearly recognizable as human. And he took the lowest form of humanity in the sense of being a servant of everybody else. He didn't try to take any rights or privileges that came with being human, that came with positions of power and status in humanity. He came as a servant. He humbled himself. He did it willingly. He humbled himself. Nobody else humbled him. He didn't submit because somebody else made him submit. I think that's a, a UFC. Any UFC fans here? Yeah, do you know what that is? You know, where the guys beat the snot out of each other for money? It's modern day gladiatorial games. You just try to beat the other guy senseless and you have to be the last one standing. Um, there's something called the submission hold and you, you, you hold them to the point where the other guy is either going to choke out and pass out maybe die in some cases, and, and you have to get him in that position where he has to tap out. That's called the submission hold. You have forcefully made that the other individual submit to you. They were fighting back and you forced them to submit. That's not the case here. It's not as if the father manipulated and forced the son into submission, forced the son into servanthood. He humbled himself. He brought this upon himself he willingly became a servant. He willingly took on the low status, the low stature of a servant. Not lowness, not dirt, not nothing, but willingly became a human to serve humanity by, and this is how he humbled himself, this is the way in which he actually showed that he was humble the way in which he took on humanity and what he did with that humanity, the way in which he chose to serve and express his humility was by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The phrase, even death on a cross, has become very familiar to us, right? 
We just sang songs about what the Son, what Jesus did on the cross for you and I. The cross has become a very mm, regular part of Christian vocabulary. A regular part of even, even if you're not a Christian, it, the cross is just a part of history. We just understand that by using the term cross, it has something to do with religion, something to do with Jesus. Paul, when he writes by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, this song, this hymn, what Paul is saying is it's actually supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to stun you in, in, in the way that in, in World War II when the soldiers were walking into the death camps that the Germans had set up, when they walked into Auschwitz and, and the graphic nature of what they saw, the horror, the disgust, the repulsiveness, the confusion of not understanding how one human being could do that to another human being. That's what that phrase does in the early church. It's not a piece of jewelry that you hang around your neck or put on your ears. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that today. That's another discussion that you can have with somebody else. Um, It's meant to be shocking. Jesus Christ being very nature God, being God himself, had every right in the world to say, nope. Humanity's lost. They've sinned. They've fallen. That's on them. Nobody else can do it. Nobody else can save them. No angel can help them. They can't help themselves. Jesus Christ had every right to go, no, that's, that's not my problem to deal with. And yet because of his nature, because of who he is, because he just exudes love and compassion and mercy, because he understands, and we'll get to the end of this, that by saving sinners, Jesus Christ is given glory. And through praising him, God the Father is given glory. He had every right to say, no, that, that, it's not my problem to deal with. And yet he obeyed. He went to the cross for you and for me. That should shock you. Why in the world would the person who had everything to lose by taking on the form of a servant, why would he do that for me? He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The shameful, disgraceful death was the point right from the beginning. That's why he came. He knew that his humility, that his taking on the form of a servant would lead to this. That was the point. That was the end goal. That's why he came. He knew it was going to lead to this and he still did it. For sinners, yes, but ultimately for the glory of God. So we see Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. He takes on the form of a servant for you and for me. He dies in the place of sinners and not just a tame death, but even death on a cross. He was willing to do that. Therefore, verse 9, this is what we see in verses 9 through 11, Jesus Christ is fully glorified. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father rewarded the Son for his self-humbling, his self-emptying, his taking on nothing, taking on the form of a servant, 
By doing what Jesus did, the Father exalts the Son. The reward of exaltation did not motivate Christ's obedience. It didn't motivate Christ in coming. It's not like Christ said, if I just go through this really, really rough thing, then I'll get something even better. Because he already had the best, equality with God. His obedience and going to the cross and the reward that he was given by the Father of exaltation, it wasn't because he went through something that he deserved as if he was getting payment for the sin that he had. It wasn't saving him from sin that he deserved. The reward of exaltation is proof that the Father acknowledged the Son in his expression of Godness. The way that the Son expressed equality with God for others, not for himself, but for the sake of sinful humanity. The Father confirms Christ's identity as equal with him. Not an acquisition of a new position, not that he was exalted to a place that he didn't already have. He is brought back after his self-humiliation. He is exalted on high. And he gave him the name that is above every name. That is, he's on on a plane all on his own. There's no other name that is equal to this. The question is, is it Jesus or Lord? Some commentators go back and forth. Is it Jesus Verse, the following verse would kind of indicate that it's the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Jesus is a name. Most agree, though, that verse 11 clarifies what, what the name is. It's that Jesus is named Lord, Lord over all. Jesus as Lord would have just shaken Roman culture right to the cord. Caesar is Lord in Roman culture. Caesar is the one who has control over everything. Caesar is the one you must worship and bow the knee to. Uh, But Jesus is Lord. And because of what Christ did, he is now exalted to the highest place, given the name that is above every name, Lord. In the Old Testament, the Jews, um, when, when Moses is talking with God, which is, have you ever... Has that ever stunned you? Moses just talked with God. Moses was just conversing with God and he said, God, Lord, when the people ask, you know, who sent you, what should I say? And the Lord responded with, tell them I am has sent you. And that name, I am, Yahweh, that became the name that the nation of Israel identified with God. That's how they that, that was the name that they gave. And, and when we come into the New Testament, when the New Testament translates that name for God, the ultimate being of the universe, the one that is sovereign and has control over everything, the one that demands your allegiance and obedience, that being is called Lord in the New Testament. And so instead of Caesar being Lord, what Paul is again affirming, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, Jesus is equal to Yahweh. The one you read about in the Old Testament, the one that you read about Jew, the one that you read about and the one that your ancestors followed, he has come in the flesh and he is Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. And at his name, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is, there is nowhere you can go where Jesus is not Lord. There is nowhere on this, uni- on this planet or in this universe that you will go that Jesus is not Lord. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Living, dead, on the earth, under the earth, angel, demon, every tongue will acknowledge, will confess. The NIV chose to 
use the word acknowledge instead of confess because when we sometimes use the word confess, in, in Christian circles, it's sometimes uh, used in, in a way that I actually believe. I'm confessing Jesus Christ as Lord because I believe that. But you can confess something that you don't actually believe and here, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord does not necessarily mean that every tongue is glad and excited and willingly praising Jesus for his lordship. But every tongue will confess in an open declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not all who acknowledge Jesus do so in worship, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't. That means that we as Christians who know who Jesus is, who have been told exactly what Jesus Christ is, who exactly he is, he is God himself and he has come in human flesh. He didn't hang on to every right and privilege that he deserved to have, but he willingly gave, gave up those rights for you and for me. Should we not worship him for that? Should we not give him praise and glory and honor because he is due all of that glory and honor? And why did Jesus do that? This is one of the most important lines in this whole hymn, the last line, to the glory of God the Father. That is, worshiping Jesus is an extension of worshiping God. That's another claim to the deity of Christ. They are one, and when we worship Jesus, we worship God. But this is something that is very important as well. When we talk about why Jesus came, when you are teaching children why Jesus came to earth, why he gave up his throne on high to become a servant, humble, lowly, to serve humanity, Jesus did what he did for the glory of God first. Yes, for your sake. Yes, so that sinners might be redeemed. Yes, so that you can call God Father. All of that is true. That is the message of the gospel, isn't it? That you can stand before God the Father complete in Jesus Christ. You have extreme benefits. Paul has already mentioned some. We have extreme benefits from being in Christ. And yet, Jesus did it because the salvation of sinners primarily brings glory to God the Father. For your sake, yes, but primarily for the sake of the glory of God. So that's what we see in this hymn. Jesus Christ, fully God. Jesus Christ, fully man. Fully servant man. And Jesus Christ, fully glorified. And we go back to verse five and we say, what's the point, Paul? Why did you bring this up? Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Be willing to die for each other. That's, that's what Jesus Christ knew by willingly humbling himself and putting others first, putting the need of others first would mean his death on the cross. And Paul says, think the same way. Have the same mindset, have the same attitude, have the same approach to each other in this church and the global church of Jesus Christ, have that approach to serving each other. Look to Jesus Christ and see what he has done and have the same approach. We've got winter coming up. Some of us let out a big groan knowing that winter's coming and snow is coming and ice is coming. But you live in Ontario, so that's kind of on you, right? Like, you, you know this happens every year. So we know that snow's coming. And I remember as a kid, my dad used to have these giant boots 
um, I forget the company, but they came up to his knees. And, and he, we lived out in the country when I was younger, and he would take me and my brother on treks, and, and we'd, we'd stomp through the snow, and you know, we were only this high, probably as old as Amelia and Naomi, and we had no hope getting through the snow that was up to his knees. But he would, he would go and he'd do these giant, you know, stomp things. Have you ever done this with your kids? For those of you that have kids, you make that giant hole in the, in the snow and then you make another one and you don't make it too far because they're not going to be able to get to it. And then you turn around and you watch your kids as they usually trip and fall face first into the snow. But you, you watch them try to just follow in your footsteps. You watch them as they take one step after the other and just go from one footprint to the other. That's what Paul says we should do with Jesus. Look at where he's walked. Look at the attitude that he had and have the exact same. B.B. Warfield, the professor of theology at Princeton Seminary, wrote this, reflecting on this passage. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world. And self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer... There will we be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there will we be to help. Wherever men fail, there will we be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there will we be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multi-form activity, multiplicity of sympathies. And what he's saying is, what Jesus has done, we are called to do. This is the attitude we ought to have towards each other, willing to die for each other. We should be willing to die to self, that's what verse four has said, and then what he said in verses six through 11, he said, you should be willing to die, actually die for each other. And we have to ask ourselves, if we can't look past the squabbles that we have with each other on day-to-day basis, the things that we get angry and upset with each other about, now some things are worth having discussions and arguments and maybe even fights about, but if you cannot have the same mindset as Jesus Christ towards your brothers and sisters in regular day life, how can we expect ourselves to be willing to die for each other? And if this isn't our hard attitude, if this isn't the attitude we recognize in ourselves, this isn't my approach, this isn't what I think about each other, and I'll confess, that's probably not my attitude. I can say without a shadow of a doubt I'd be willing to die for my family, for my children and my wife. The rest of you I'm not so sure about, if I'm being honest. If I actually look at my heart of hearts and I go, yeah, they're great, but... I'm not so sure. How do we change that? How do we have that heart attitude of Jesus Christ? Is it looking to ourselves? Is it trying to be more disciplined? Is it maybe reading the scriptures more? Is it maybe praying more? Those are good and right and helpful things. But what Paul says is not, here's the formula. Here's steps one through five on how to have a better heart, how to have the heart of Jesus Christ, how to have the mind and the attitude. What he simply says is look at Christ. Look to him and what he's done. We do so by looking to Jesus and what he's done for us and grasping all of who he is, 
the magnitude of who he is as God, and the depths he was willing to take and go to for our sake, the more we look at Jesus, the less we look at ourselves, and the less that we look at each other and notice all of the problems, because Jesus had every right to say, sinful humanity has too many problems to deal with. I'm done. I'm not dealing with that. And Jesus didn't. And neither should we. That's hard, isn't it? Are we willing to admit that that's hard? That loving each other and having the same attitude as Jesus is hard? So we ask for help. And we go back to Jesus again and again and again. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Why? So that we might bring glory to God. Not for your own self, not for your own gain, not so that you become more important, so that people recognize things in you and lift you up in their minds or put you in a a position or give you status that you deserve. It has nothing to do with that. We have the same attitude in mind as Jesus Christ because the glory of God is all that matters. If it means dying so that somebody else may bring glory to God, I will do it. If it means dying in a God-honoring way so that God is glorified, that is what Paul has said, to die is gain. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Why? Because I can die and give glory to God. And if I'm gonna live, it's gonna be for the glory of God. And how do we put that on the forefront of our minds? By looking to Jesus Christ, looking to the example that he's given again and again and again. Father, help us. Help us to have a changed heart, to have a changed mind. We have been given the mind of Christ. We have been given the spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling within us. We, we pray that you would help us to understand, to see, to grasp more clearly what Jesus has done for us and help us to take that and to show it to others, to show it to each other, to show it to our brothers and sisters who have the same mind, the same spirit. Help us to work together in unity pressing on to know Jesus more. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Who willingly took the form of a servant for your people. We are grateful that you have called us each by name and called us to yourself We pray now that you would help us to hear and see more clearly the calling you have for us in following Christ in his example, in what he has done for us and displaying it to others. We ask for your help for it is a big task and it is hard to do. We pray that you would change our hearts and it's in Jesus' name that we pray for your glory and for your honor. Amen.